All right, we are about to embark on a journey in Ephesians, uh, a good, long journey in Ephesians. Our, uh, our, uh, our text here today, it starts with uh, these words, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace to God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the, uh, the book of Ephesians uh, that we have here is, uh, is written to, we read it here in verse 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Uh, Ephesus is a place that Paul uh, had uh, been at, he, he had traveled to in his missionary journeys. Uh, if you want uh, more on this, I think it's uh, Acts 18, Acts 19 um, in there. It gets crazy. There's a riot, um, uh, literally a riot uh, at Paul's preaching of the gospel. And he writes to the people who may have been converted at that time uh, in that sermon, in that whatever. And this is, this is a people, Ephesus is a people who are very rich, uh, this is a port town, uh, and so uh, then this is also something else. It's a, uh, the city of, um, of Artemis, uh, the Greek god Artemis. And so these people are very in tune to the things that are happening on, on earth, but they're very, very in tune to the things that are happening in, in, the, in the pantheon with the gods. They are to worship Artemis. I'd show a picture of the temple of Artemis. Uh, here at Ephesus, but it's uh, really decrepit and is like a rock. So it's just imagine a rock. That's what we have left of it. But it was glorious uh, in, its, in its day. These people are very aware of these things. And so, uh, so Paul speaks kind of to their level uh, on their terms. But I think that, that God in his, uh, in, in his wisdom has, has spoken to the Ephesians in a way that we can hear very much in our context today. So I want to frame this up a little bit, uh, a little bit of today, uh, this sermon. We're going to go through the text that, that Jack just read, uh, but uh, a little bit of it is with an eye on setting us up so that, we, so that we'll have a little bit more traction as we go week after week uh, looking uh, at this. So I want to give you kind of the big picture here very fast. So um, if you don't have, I guess, if you don't have a Bible open, whether that's, you know, on your phone or uh, you, you brought one, we have these scripture journals. They're, they're really nice. Um, and uh, I'd encourage you to get one of these uh, and to mark it up a bunch. We actually have a, um, uh, on the Facebook, the North Campus Facebook group, uh, there's like an article there where it was awesome. Someone asked, hey, I got a scripture journal. Uh, they asked, John Piper, uh, what do I do? How do I write on this? And then John Piper just like talks about it and it's really helpful. Um, and so if you go on there, there's kind of a, uh, just some of the ways in which you can approach uh, doing that. I'd actually kind of challenge you, not as bragging rights, but as just kind of help uh, to people. Get on there and, and, and leave comments or whatever, or leave a picture of how you're, you're marking up yours. I mark mine up till I can't read it and then it's not as helpful. Uh, so maybe I should not mark it up as much there. Uh, but if you show, uh, post some pictures or whatever it is to just kind of help so that we can be a reading people and understand how to read the Bible a little bit more. I think sometimes it's, you learn a lot more if you just watch someone do it for, you know, five minutes than if you sit there and try to figure out a new way of reinventing the wheel. Uh, so uh, I would encourage you to, to, to get one of these. If you didn't get one, feel free. I don't think it's rude. Go out, grab one. Um, uh, or get one, get one on the way out. So uh, that's just kind of framing it up. We will need the text here as we look through it. Uh, even if you're only here today, you will need to be looking at the text uh, there. But I want to say uh, something here, uh, is that uh, our scripture journals and my ESV Bible say, the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Um, 
So I'm going to be kind of stuffy on this one. Uh, on my scripture journal, I've actually scratched out the word letter and put sermon uh, because I don't believe this is actually a letter. Paul writes several letters in the New Testament. Uh, a lot of the New Testament is, uh, you know, a compiling of his letters. Uh, what happens, though, in the letters of Paul is that he has some, some issues, some content that he's, that he's addressing. There's a body to the letter. We don't get that in Ephesians. Ephesians is kind of a weird one when you look at it just structure-wise. It doesn't match the others. He has a big point, and that's different than the body. There is no thing that he's specifically talking about. It's the whole idea is spread out in different ways. So it's a sermon rather than a letter in that it lacks a, a, a formal body with a main issue to address. Uh, it is also a sermon because it calls for action, but not in a list of virtues kind of at the end of, uh, uh, kind of in the way that many of the other letters do. He gives the theology and then he turns it into practice. He's gonna do that here in Ephesians, but he's gonna do this in a different way than, than many of the other, uh, than the other letters that Paul writes. What Paul is going to do in, in the book of Ephesians, and I think this is so amazing, is that he is actually preaching a sermon which is a call to remind people to simply be what you are. That, that's kind of his big point, which sounds like, ah, you know, the Christian in, in the 21st century says, wait, wait, no, no, wait, wait, aren't we going against that? No, he says, be what you are, but we really need to know who we are. And either you're, you're dead or you're alive. Christ, or God has brought you alive in Christ. Therefore, this is going to be the rest of, you know, the book. This is chapters four through six. Therefore, walk this way. He's not saying, like, be something new, He's saying you are something new, so walk that way. And so that's how he's going to be talking about this. This is why it kind of comes off as a sermon. I really encourage you sometime to maybe read it out loud, or if you have a, you know, you can get podcasts that, that, that will read it out loud. Just hear the whole thing and try to hear what, what is going on uh, with this whole thing. It, it really moves. He says, he starts it very big. God is huge. God is sovereign. God is doing something. He's going to, uh, that's chapter one and two. Uh, and then, then he's going to wind it back into uh, you know, chapter 3. He's going to say, here's a, a note about me, and now we're going to land it in our everyday, and we're going to just see how do we walk in our everyday. And then in chapter 6, he's going to bring it all the way back, and he's going to say, and now stand firm in your faith because we're going to look at how God in the cosmos and the heavenlies has worked a work in you and has saved you and has empowered you to walk in the way you are worthy. And now as you look back out at your life, at the people around you, and as you look out now at the cosmic powers, you're gonna to need to stand firm against Satan. And that's kind of how it goes. It starts huge, it gets into the everyday, and then it goes back out. There is a meshing between uh, the eternal and the everyday. That is a big theme, maybe one of the biggest, if not the biggest theme of the book of Ephesians. So, I say book, because it's in our, our Bible, but it really is, uh, re reads a lot more like a sermon. Now, to do this, uh, Paul will start with this high view. He brings it low, and he takes it big again. And this is why you can read on our sermon slide here, Ephesians. This is why uh, the pastors have, have really workshopped this a bit to say this is a main message of the book of Ephesians is that it is all of Christ for all of life. It's the eternal in the everyday. So what is Paul addressing here? Why does he write this then? I think he's writing this because we don't see that connection so much. Uh, sometimes we like to compartmentalize, you know, our life. Sometimes we blend the eternal so that everything becomes spiritual. Uh, we have this unhealthy uh, naturalism 
Or we say, no, it couldn't be a miracle. God didn't heal someone as an answer to prayer. It was the medicine that did this. And we have a very flattened view of the spiritual. Or we say, you know, don't go to the hospital. We'll just pray it away. And maybe that's a thing. But I'm just using one example to explain that we have this, this, this strange relationship. And, and no matter where you're at, you have issues of this. We all come together needing to understand rightly how to balance the life and faith and how that works. And we're going to find in Ephesians, especially in our text today, that that all comes to a culmination and it's held together in Jesus Christ. It's not that all things are in Jesus. It's that all things are rightly set in Jesus. Some things must go. Some things must be made bigger. But if we are ever to have a right balance, a right understanding, a right interaction with the spiritual world and our daily lives, we have to go to Christ. So, where we start here in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, and we're going to see huge praise of God. Let's look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is huge. I said we're starting big. Blessed be the God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us. We are finding that blessed be God. Paul starts with huge praise. He directs us to praise first. He says, we praise God. I just want to get it out there. This is the point. We need to praise God. But he says, we praise God for three reasons. And this, these reasons then will become our sermon outline here. We praise God because we are chosen by God, verses 3 through 6. We are redeemed in Christ, verses 7 through 10. And we are sealed with the Spirit, verses 11 through 14. We are chosen by God. We are redeemed in Christ, and we are sealed with the Spirit. So, we'll look at our first one here. We are chosen by God. I'm going to read verse uh, 3 and then jump to verse 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. We have been blessed by God in Christ. Paul's sermon opens with this praise and blessing. If you want to break down kind of just the structure of this sermon, we're going to get uh, maybe four general thoughts that happen here, which actually what Paul is doing is he's just using kind of the Greek rhetoric of the day to explain. So he starts with this thing, the, uh, the, the eulogy, the thanksgiving, the praise. That's what we're reading now. He's going to move then to, to the narrative, the grounds for thanksgiving. This will be in chapter 2. He'll explain exactly, narrate exactly what God did to elicit praise. Uh, then he's going to move in chapters 3, 4, 5 to, to this idea of to, to exhort people, to, to urge us to something. He's going to say, now how do we walk in light of what God has done? How do we respond rightly to this? And then he'll end in, in chapter 6 with uh, kind of the... Um, I don't know, what I call it is uh, the conclusion with gusto. Uh, it says, here's what I mean. Also, you got to fight Satan in it. So he really ends it on a, on a huge note uh, there. So we open with blessing, but reading the words, what is the reason for the blessing? I think that's the big, the big point. So, okay, I want to bless God or praise God or give thanks to God. Why? Why should I do this? Why bless, quote, 
the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, end quote. We can ask the text this question. Why do we do that? Well, we find it's because, as we read, he has blessed us with every, what does it say there? With every material blessing on earth, right? He is, uh, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. It says because he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I think sometimes we, we want to praise God because we want to read our Bible as though he, you know, is going to bless us materially. He may or may not uh, bless us materially, but we know that regardless of where we're at in life, whether, wherever our, our wealth is, wherever our, I don't know, health, our kids, our relationships are, we do know that we can bless him always because what he has done for us in the heavenly places. The spiritual reality does something to us that our material world can never do. It defines us. It redeems us. It makes us his. And nothing we have on earth can do that. And that's why we can bless him because he has blessed us beyond just the here and now. Now, I want to hold that because it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter for the here and now. It just means that our praise comes from something much deeper than just how life is going right now. So, uh, he says we praise him because of his abundant spiritual blessings. This is an important theme throughout Ephesians. And here it is. The purposeful interconnection between the natural with the supernatural. That God has designed the world of the supernatural and the natural to have a meaningful relationship. A major theme in Ephesians is the purposeful or the designed interconnection between the natural and the supernatural. As you read through Ephesians over, over, over the next weeks and, you know, and for the rest of life, be mindful to hear the interplay of those things. But how is this cosmic plan made plain? How is it packaged in the everyday? Because we read that the will of God, the will of God, he has predestined this, he has, he has chosen us. It seems like there's, we're talking about really big stuff here. How do we, what does this mean here for today? Well, let's read verse three once more. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ. Okay, so he has blessed us, not just simply blessed us, but he has blessed us in Christ. There's something important about Christ. Uh, this is also comes up in verse 6. It says, uh, in the beloved, which, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. If you have the ESV, or the scripture journals, uh, that's capital B, beloved. That's Jesus. You can look at John 3. Jesus is God's beloved. He has blessed us in Christ. That's pretty awesome. I think sometimes God, I feel like God blesses me because I prayed a whole awful lot. Or God blesses me because I tried really hard. But it sounds like there's some other conduit for God's blessing, and it's because of Christ. I don't deserve this. What do I deserve? I deserve to get kicked out of the garden forever. But in Christ, there is blessing. You can't really experience the intended blessing of God unless you are connected to Christ because that is the mode with which he blesses us. In Christ, though, I'm going to make a big deal about this as a word nerd but also as a preacher of Ephesians. In Christ is a very big deal 
in, in the book of Ephesians. Here is, here is maybe, I, I, I'm just gonna say, I think this is the major theme of Ephesians. All things are united in Christ. So here are some numbers to make this point because I like stats and numbers. Uh, so uh, one way that we can read the Bible is uh, uh, as we read the Bible, there's, I mean, you can read it just you know, word for word, sentence by sentence. You can also study patterns. Okay, so if you, you know somebody who says uh, something a lot, you know, um, they talk about a certain topic a lot, that you can tell that that's something that's important to them. Or they use a word a lot, and you can tell that that's a word that either they're on for that season of life or it's something that's very, very important about them um, or important to them. Uh, the books of the Bible and literature work this way as well. In Ephesians, uh, these are uh, the, I would say, the, the five most, uh, most occurring words in the book of Ephesians. So these are the things that are said most in the book of Ephesians. Christ is said 46 times, God 33 times, love 22 times, spirit 14 times, and grace 12 times. Now, okay, if you find anything else in there, okay, I'm not counting like the and, you know, any of that, but... Uh, if you find anything else in there that, that, that this is actually wrong, please let me know. Um, but what do we do with this? Because you can see this and see, you know, okay, neat, we just counted numbers. What do we do with this? We sit back and we say, if these five things are the most important things to Paul as he's writing this, as the Spirit is moving him to write this, what do we find out? What a great exercise. Maybe throw those down on your table and say, a book that's written with these as the main word, what is that? What does that mean for us? Maybe here's one, that the triune God loves us and extends his grace. Wow, that's going to come up a lot. Christ, God, Spirit, are you jokingly talking about all three members of the Trinity the most? And within that is love. Almost, not quite, double that of the Spirit. Wow, love is big. And grace, almost as much as the Spirit. Oftentimes, it's God's grace to us. That's huge. I want to go a little bit further here because we're on the point in Christ. Um, so in Christ, there are 46 times that we see this. Of these 46 times, 30 of them are in some kind of connection to this idea of in Christ. So you can be talking about Christ, but then but the Ephesians say, you know, Christ died for your sins. Like, that's one way to say Christ. But there's another way to say that all things are unified in Christ. In him, we have our faith. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have this hope. These are, th these are ways that, that we find out that Christ, as the conduit of God's graces to us, is a very big deal here. In him, in some form or another, in Christ, in him, some other way, um, of whom or in whom 30 times. It is the biggest deal in Ephesians. I'm making a huge deal about that because I believe that Christ, according to Paul in Ephesians, is that threshold between the supernatural and the natural. We see in John 1, and the Word of God was with God, and He became flesh. And here in Ephesians, we see, and this really mattered for your salvation, the fact that Jesus spans both the divine and the natural. That, 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 he, that he answers your big questions of God because he is God, but also because he follows God and obeys God. These are, your, these are your big questions. Jesus is going to be that, and he's going to bind it all together in him. 
So how then does he, uh, does he do this? So he, we have been blessed by God because we are chosen by God. We are, we are blessed. And here now, verses 4 and 5, we find out that we are chosen. Verse 4, even as he chose us, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. One major way in which God has blessed us in Christ is by choosing us for a purpose. There's so much here. Uh, I was, I was uh, having lunch on, on Friday with uh, Pastor Doug Fern, who's preaching this at East Campus today, and we both said, good night, this is five sermons long. So uh, this, this, these two verses are, are, are just incredible. There's so much here. Uh, uh, ask it tough questions. Look for, for how the Bible uh, develops this. Uh, for, to condense this, I think maybe by way of summary, I've rewritten uh, these verses. Uh, in love, God des- desired and decided before the world began that we should be in direct relationship with him as holy and blameless. In love, God desired and decided before the world began that we should be in direct relationship with him as holy and blameless. It's right there. I I love that right at the middle of those two verses is in love. Because of his love, he had a plan and he is sovereign and his plan rolls. His plan will be accomplished. And his plan is motivated and moves by his desire to be with us. And he can't fully be with us if we are with sin. Something needs to be done with this sin. He wants to bring us all the way in, not just to be kind of in proximity of us. He doesn't want to be our, our, our spiritual neighbor. He wants to adopt us into his family as sons. Before I go to the next point of, of what do we do with the sin that keeps us from that, I think that there's a point, that, an implication that we, we can get here, a principle, is that if we're chosen, then we're desired. God didn't have to make this part of the plan. He chose to. Uh, one, uh, one commentator, he says it this way, God not only chose us to be in Christ, but at the same time, he decided to bring us into relationship with himself that could be best described through the metaphor of adoption. He brings us in and calls us his children for those who have faith in Christ. But in order for us to stand blameless before him, we must be made right. Uh, this is something that we'll be talking about, how this happens. How we are made right is going to be a thing that's, that's very detailed, discussed in chapter two of Ephesians. Uh, I think in, in, uh, in two weeks, um, Andrew Hancock will actually be preaching on that for us here and explaining how we are made right in him, how we are made alive in Christ. We must be redeemed. That's what the text is here. We must be redeemed, and, redeem- and redemption of believers is Paul's second reason for praising God. We praise God because we're chosen by God and because we are redeemed in Jesus. We are redeemed according to the riches of his grace. The Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, helped the church understand Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension in a variety of ways. One of those 
he develops is through the image of redemption. So here's, here's the basic idea. Uh, Wayne Grudem, he defines it, uh, he defines it this way. Uh, redemption is Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and to Satan through the payment of a ransom. I've got to be cautious because it's not as though Satan has power over us. God could just do that, but the analogy is that there is redemption. There is a buying back of us from slavery. When we hear redemption, we should also maybe make a connection to slavery, to sin there. And so what he's basically saying, because Paul is so good with these word pictures, is that, is that, is that though we, we are sinners, we are, we are, we are bound to this, uh, this sin. We are bound to, we are slaves to sin. Now, very, very much similar to the way that the, uh, the Israelites were, were, in, uh, were, were bound and enslaved in Egypt. And, and, and how are we released from this? We can't, on our own, be released from this. It is only to the work of God that we are made, that we are redeemed by Christ dying on the cross. His blood redeems us so that we can be free. We can be adopted in. Galatians 4, Paul says this. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does, not, uh, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is, under, uh, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So also, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. We were enslaved. We were held back. How are we freed? But when the fullness of time came, when God's plan happened, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. We get to verse 7 in our text today. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What I have done is given you a very, a very good uh, theology here of redemption, but that, does not, that doesn't do a whole lot if it doesn't you know, drop down into what does this mean for me today. Wayne Grudem also follows up and he says, we have been delivered from bondage, not simply to sin, but to the guilt of sin and the bondage of ruling powers in our lives. Because Christ has died on the cross, we no longer have to feel guilty for the sins of our past. We no longer have to feel shame for the sins of our past. They come back up. They always come up. And if they don't come up, uh, uh, it's just when thinking about it, certain situations bring that stuff back. And we can actually, it's not just a maneuver that Christians do. We can actually, because Christ is real and he is the redemption, if we believe in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, we could say, no, that's not me. Christ takes that. And we can have hope. And we can live freely as though we are, we are in, 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 the, in the grace, in the spirit, in the presence of a father who loves us and says, look at my kids, this is so awesome. Why don't you kids do a whole bunch of nasty stuff? Yeah, but we took care of that. Look what they're doing now. That's how God treats us in Christ. That is a very good guard against the attacks of the devil. But it's not as though we are uh, we redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We need not carry guilt or shame, but we carry faith. And so there's those two, those two levels. Either you are, you are bound to sin and, and, and you, or you are free. But here we, we see then also that, that either if you are bound to sin, then you, you, 
you're stuck in, in, in an unbelief that Jesus can actually free you. Or you have faith and you are free. He's really laying that out uh, pretty well. But it's not as though we are simply set free. You see, this is the, this is the amazing power of, of God. The, uh, the, uh, the abolition of man from sin is not the end goal. Like just to free people from their sin is not what God's going, going for here. It's part of it. It's not the end goal, the purpose or the will of God. Because he desires more than that. He desires more than just freeing you. So if you think that sometimes that, that the Christian walk is just a bunch of people who said at one time, yeah, I'm a sinner, and that's it. And God, you know, God forgive my sins. That's a real thing. That's, that's how it begins. But it's not just a one-time touch as though now I'm free, now I'm forgiven, and now I can go do whatever. Now I don't have to have a meaningful relationship there. It's the beginning of that relationship because God wants to free you, but he also uh, is able to do much more than that. Redemption of sinners does not exhaust the coffers of God's grace. God does not pile up all his grace just simply to forgive you. There is more in the sanctification, in the ongoing journey of life that you have in the presence of God. And so if it's something where you've said, I, I just don't know about this, this faith thing. I don't know about uh, why I feel forgiven, but I don't know what the purpose is. I'd really encourage you, lean into God more. Ask God more honest questions. Read his word more. Talk to his people more. We cannot exhaust the generous coffers of our God's riches. Let us read again, verse 7. I'll go all the way to, uh, to verse 10. In him we have redemption through his blood, according to the immeasurable riches of his grace. Grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and in doing so, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. I want to stop there. A plan for the fullness of time. I think this entire uh, uh, sermon is actually only one sentence in the original language, so it's really hard to, to cut it up a bit here. But as a plan for the fullness of time, he's about to give us something. He can drone on a bit, but right here, we need to know that Paul is setting up the delivery of God's plan. How many times have we asked, what is the will of God? And his plan is this, the end of verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, if you uh, write in your Bible, have a scripture journal, just get, get that one underlined or circled or, or boxed or whatever it is because we will come back to that one again and again and again and again to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Okay, so that is a bunch. That we are, we, are, we are chosen by God, we are blessed by God, we are redeemed in Christ, and now we get to this fullness of the plan. So I want to just pause, take a breath, and say this is what Paul is doing. Paul has this amazing sense where, where I, I describe it as though he's, he's looking around this corner oftentimes, and he's looking uh, down one lane, which is, which is our everyday, our normal lives, and then he's looking down this other lane, which is like this alleyway to the heavenlies. And, and, he, and he's kind of looking at both, and he's helping us to understand both of these things. And right here, Paul is saying, what I see over here 
matters about over here. What I see of God actually matters in our everyday life, and actually what you, your everyday life also matters for eternity. These things are very woven together. And, and, and I don't want to just stop at that. Your life now matters forever. See, we have this opportunity here, as any good prophet, you know, maybe like, like Paul is saying, as any good prophet would say is, you have a time here now on earth while you are alive to make this decision. Is that reality of God, is that the real thing? Is that the real way? And according to Paul, he's saying, I've seen it. I thought through it. I've believed it. I've seen other people believe it. I've seen it work miraculously. I've seen it work logically. I've seen it work historically. And now, you know, this side of, 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 of the cross as well, uh, centuries down the road, we still see evidences of it spiritually working. We still see evidences of it historically checking out, of it literarily checking out. We see it working in our own lives. And if you're not into you know, all the apologetics there, you know someone who has been affected by Christ. You know someone who maybe, maybe two, three years ago has said something uh, one way or another about life and their view, and you've seen God work in them. Maybe they've moved a little bit. Maybe they've worked a lot. One of my privileges as a pastor, and I think this is, I always thought, why are pastors so convinced that the gospel is real? It's because we get a front seat view of all your lives. Every so often, I, I, I bring up, uh, you know, I'll bring up my wife, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe once or twice out of a year when no one's here, and, and stand up here and I say, this is what I get to see on Sunday. This is how God is working in the lives. And even as I look out, I can see it's real. Like God is working. You can pray and expect for him to work. He may be trimming your life now. He may be disciplining you now. He may be testing you now. But he has an intention. He has a goal. He has a purpose there. And, and you could only understand that and set your life in that and have hope that he's there for your good long term if you mesh together the fact that the spiritual world is just as real as the natural world and they work together. Now, I want to drop this a, a little bit more here because we can have a confidence in God when we understand this. And maybe work out a couple of the implications here. We can praise God because we are chosen by God, because we are redeemed in Christ, and because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. This will be the last few verses here. What we read in Galatians ends with, uh, ends with, uh, ends with these two verses. Uh, in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, because you are sons, God has set forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. See, in the riches of God's grace, we have an inheritance. We are sealed to receive it. I think those two ideas are there, inheritance and the sealing. You see, the seal of the Holy Spirit that we have in our hearts as believers is a guarantee, not simply an identification as a Christian. I know some scholars say this is just an identification, but it's not because the next verse says it's a guarantee, a guarantee for our inheritance. I really do think that the important word in this section is until, that we are sealed until we have access to the inheritance because that until gives us that hope that if you believe in Christ, 
you are guaranteed every day of your life that you will actually see in reality the spiritual blessings of God, the spiritual reality of God. And that moves us on each and every day with hope. However, what we really need today is not a glimpse into the future. What are those? What is that inheritance? What will my blessing be? But rather, we need confidence in the reality of the future, that we will be sealed until that day. Verse 14, it says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Because of God's past work that he chose us, because of God's present active work in redeeming us, because of God's future work, it's sealing us for that, in, for, uh, that day where we acquire possession. We can rest and trust that we are sons and daughters of God. If chosen, then desired. If predestined, then we are not the main actor. If redeemed, then released from guilt and shame. If sealed, then confident in our blessed future. But the message of Ephesians doesn't just stop with your thoughts and my emotions on Sunday. It takes us into that every day. Even though I've been trying to get us there, I don't feel like we've actually landed in the every day. We've just talked about, hey, you should really think about all these amazing glories of God in your every day. What does this actually mean? We must acknowledge the overlap and live that way. I think that the church needs to be that example. Uh, you know, one, uh, one missiologist says that the apologetic, the, the reason, that the way that we under, people will understand Christ in an age where they don't really want to go to church is that the church be Christ to them. H- how do we do that? How do, how do we live as people that, that are citizens of two kingdoms? How do we do that in our everyday lives? That is our task. That's why we need the Spirit to guide us in this work. So at work, there is a two-kingdom mentality. There are the ways of God that interact with, with, with the policies of our workplace that should shape our ethics. Yeah, we have to get projects done. How do we get them done? Yeah, we have coworkers. How do we treat them? Are they our pawns? Are they our projects? Are they actually partners with us? Are we, are we, are we working with them in those things? People know that. People feel that. People understand that what was remarkable about Jesus is that he actually treated people differently. Not just led them to new places, but in the process, he paused to the lowly and he listened to them and he responded. How about there are coworkers you have that need to be listened to, that have actually dropped several hints that they want to be listened to. Or neighbors, when we go home, there are neighbors longing for things that we long for. We're all on this journey. What gospel, that is, what good news do you proclaim at home? What is the thing that your family rejoices about the most in a given week or a given season? What have you lifted up as that thing that inspires hope in your family? We do it, whether it's, whether it's pizza and a movie night, whether it's Jesus Christ, or whether it's the next vacation. We do it in different ways, and all of these have their place. But what is the ultimate goal? Which world is most desired in your home? Are you helping your children? Are you helping your spouse? Are you helping your friends and your neighbors look also down the alley toward the kingdom of God? Paul is telling us this is God's plan. 
to bring together these things and to do it in a very embodied way. Why do you come to church? Is it a refueling of your individual soul with inspiring words and songs? Which could be, I think the songs today were just fantastic and very inspiring. Is it wrestling with the true God? Is it considering whether this thing's real? Is it longing for connection to people? Is it feasting on his word? I think all of these have a place. But to be thoughtful about how the spiritual shapes our everyday is a big thing that we need to be worried about, that we need to be concerned about, that we need to be walking in. And so here in Ephesians, we see the gospel is revealed to us this way. God chooses God, uh, maybe God ordains the plan. Christ executes the plan and the Spirit takes the plan into effect. And this is how we interact with God. As those who have been called to repent of our sins so that Christ can forgive our sins so that we are sealed, so that we can go with that promise of being made blameless and holy in the presence of God. God is calling all of us there to respond in faith to Him. So, whether you are uh, uh, someone who doesn't have faith, who doesn't believe in Christ, or who hasn't reconciled this idea that you are a sinner, I think the next step is think through this with hopefully, prayerfully, the next step being confess of sins, believe in this. This reality is a deeper reality than you will ever know. You are a sinner. And you need to be forgiven by Christ. And he is standing there. We have a cross up here to remind us, always, we are sinners. He is ready to forgive. But if you are a Christian, I would say don't just stop there. Christ didn't pour out. God didn't pour out all of his riches and his grace just to forgive you one time. We are there for an ongoing shaping. We're not there. We're sealed until that day. Keep pursuing until that day. Walk until that day. Ephesians 1 is very difficult to preach because it's like five sermons. Hopefully, I've given you just the zero entry into some of those themes that are there. I've prayed that the Spirit take some of this and latch onto your hearts and convict you, comfort you where needed. I would love to continue a conversation, whether that's uh, immediately after the service, whether it's over brunch, uh, whether that's uh, in the days to come. I really want us to be a people of the book, of, uh, of reading. This is, this is something that is on our elders' hearts, that is on our pastors' and preachers' hearts. We really want you to be in the Word, prayerfully, thoughtfully, and in conversation. And so uh, I'd encourage you to, to read this some more. Next week, we will be reading uh, the last half of Ephesians 1, and we'll be looking at how then we take these huge spiritual realities and then pray. Prayer is a real practice of binding together our beliefs that the spiritual world really does matter for our everyday life. And we're going to see how Paul models that and what he prays for. So let's turn to God now as we, uh, as we turn to our, our Heavenly Father with our earthly needs. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, the gift of, uh, of Ephesians. Thank you for the challenges it presents to our, our thoughts, to our hearts. Thank you for the, um, thank you for the, uh, the hope it gives us. 
Thank you for the challenge it gives us. Uh, man, it, it, it is so meaty. It gives us a lot to chew on. Please give us the discipline to chew on it. Rightfully, with right hearts, with hope, with openness, with teachability. And we know your spirit can do that. If we need to be convicted toward faith, I pray that your spirit convict us toward faith. If we need to be convicted toward a maturing faith, I pray that your spirit would convict us toward that. We thank you so much for Jesus Christ who, who, who takes action on your ordained plan. We thank you for the spirit who proves to us that we are sealed by redemption forever.